This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Great War Channel podcast. In this beautiful year 2021, which is, I think, 150 years after the foundation of the German Empire. The second one. <laughs> to be precise. <laughs> and to mark that 150th anniversary... Katja Hoyer, who's an historian uh, from Germany living in England, wrote a book about it called Blood and Iron. And Blood and Iron are two of my favorite topics, so it was a pleasure to talk to her about the book today. They're also the, fam the most uh, popular topic for any good Prussian at that time. Indeed. Um, yeah, so uh, as you mentioned uh, throughout the interview, I think uh, it's quite interesting that this is a, a new, fresh look on this topic which where you might assume uh, a lot of, you know, which has been covered quite frequently. And at the same time, uh, as you also mentioned, it's quite easy to read. So if you're still looking for, well, if you're looking for a good way to spend that Christmas money that your aunt gave you, maybe this is, maybe this is the book to get. And it's also hot of the press just came out uh, a few days ago. Indeed. And I do praise this book sort of, explicitly during the interview and i did it probably more in this interview than i normally do but there's a reason for that because i really enjoyed it and i really think it's a good einstieg is the german word but it, if you're not like super into weighty academic tomes arguing this and that but you're interested in imperial germany this is a really great a kind of one volume digestible way to way to jump in and it left me sort of feeling and i think i even say it this way towards the end of the interview feeling like okay so i'm familiar with a lot of the concepts but it's all seems to like crystallize now and i can make some connections uh, better in terms of how germany developed over that period of time in the second empire so it's a win Without further ado, enjoy the interview. And of course, um, if you want to ask the world-class historians that we usually interview about their most recent works, if you want to ask them any questions, you can do so on our Patreon page. We could not produce The Great War without your support on Patreon. It really means a lot to us. It means a lot to us in this new year, which will hopefully be better than 2020, like on a global perspective. And... If you want to get your hands on the book, we will put a link to it in the podcast description. So enough rambling. Here's the interview. So I'm happy to welcome our guest for today, who's going to talk to us about my temporary adopted country before I ended up in Austria, about Germany. Today we have with us Katja Hoyer, who's a historian who has just come out 
with what, according to Twitter history anyway, is the new hot commodity, a book called Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. So uh, thanks a lot, Katja, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Now, I want to jump right into things because a lot of our viewers of the channel and listeners of the podcast had questions about Imperial Germany. I think it's, it is indeed a hot topic. So let's ease ourselves in. Let's go with the traditional origin story question. What possessed you, and I mean that in a positive way, to think, hey, you know what? I've got something new and original and different to say about the Second Empire, which has, of course, already had sort of oceans of ink spilt about it. Um, so yeah, how did you how did you hit upon this topic and say, yeah, this is what I want to do and this is what I want to do differently? Well, being German myself, I've always found it a, a fascinating thing that we find it so difficult as a people to, to tell our own national narrative because there is, in effect, no national strand to it. Um, I mean, I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore in East Germany um, and sort of, you know, growing up in the 90s had teachers that were preaching the evils of, of socialism and communism where, you know, five or six years earlier than, than that, they'd been doing the opposite and telling all of their children how, you know, how evil capitalism was. Um, and asking, you know, even the teacher then, how could you do that? They just went, well, you know, that's what people expect from us now. That's what Germany is now. So, so we'll go with that. And, you know, so from an early age, I started wondering what is this Germany? Where did it start? Um, you know, how did we end up here with this kind of almost broken history that, that comes in segments as opposed to one continuous strand? And I think, I mean, you say that a lot of ink has been spent on it, but actually the focus I find has largely been on, on the Second World War and, and Nazism and the effect on, on post-war Germany that that's had. And I think actually going back to the sort of origins of the, of the modern German nation state, looking at where it actually came from in 1871 with the foundation makes sense. Um, and as it's the 150 year anniversary of that foundation, um, you know, this is sort of my birthday present to the fatherland looking at its, its sort of uh, original, you know, story and when where it originally came from. So it's it's a very personal thing. And I think that that also is what makes my angle on it fairly unique in that basically I am German looking at it from my own perspective. But I've also lived in Britain for the last 10 years. And so I've got this sort of outsider perspective in many ways as well, understanding, you know, how the rest of the world kind of looks at it from the outside. And I think it's the combination of those things that have put a new stamp on that, on that topic. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite an interesting personal angle. Uh, that's, that's one of the advantages of that question. We always get a little insight into things. Quite interesting. I guess I, maybe I'm a bit biased. I feel the presence of the Second Empire in my own relationship with history so much stronger than uh, the Second World War. So let us then go back to those origins in 1871. Now, one of the things that struck me, and this is, by the way, for those of you out there listening, this is a, a very readable book. It's not your typical sort of German history book that's, you know, 800 pages of pages long and every sentence is sort of seven lines long. This is a very readable one. Uh, one of the things that struck me is this opposition about creating the state because the king of Prussia is sort of a bit reluctant to 
wholeheartedly jump into the new titles and all this kind of thing. And even says at one point that, you know, Bismarck is ruining Prussia by cobbling this new state together. And on the other side, of course, you have forces bringing things together, Bismarck's policy, but also different cultural factors of language and mythology and so on. So can you summarize for us basically who's pushing and who's pulling where? What forces are in Germany pushing for this new state to come together and which ones are resisting it? Well, this wasn't something that started in 1870 or 1871 with the actual unification. Um, my personal view is that the origin of it is, is probably the fight against Napoleon um, and the way that Napoleon was driven from the German lands, as it were, by the Germans collectively. And I think that experience of people signing up, you know, to a volunteer army and, and the people's fight, as it were, against, you know, a, a foreign oppressor made people realize that perhaps they do have things in common, like their language and their culture and so on. And that was then in the in the decades following um, that sort of war of liberation in 1812, um, very much pushed by Brothers Grimm, for example, writing up fairy tales um, in, in one common format, um, which then all Germans you know, had access to and, and which shaped their language. But also things like the 1848 revolutions and, and basically other cultural and, and social events um, had an impact on this. And so I would say it's not purely, but majorly a sort of bottoms up approach where um, you get sort of the burgeoning middle class is really pushing for this, um, both for social reasons and for ideological reasons, as well as economic reasons, uh, due to the fact that their new status is effectively now, you know, monetary, as opposed to having titles and having positions that need to be defended. Um, and to them, having a common market and having um, areas to trade within sort of Central Europe made sense economically as well as ideologically. Um, and they'd already made a, a fairly strong push in the 1848 revolutions, um, which was then just about still averted by the by the elites. Um, and I think also the sense of almost fear, what could have happened at that point, you know, drives the elite into that very uneasy compromise in 1870 and 1871. Um, so the reluctance isn't so much against Germany per se, it's about losing um Prussia losing Bavaria losing Baden and all of the other German states and the power that the aristocracy still held over their own little dominions um for that to sink into a kind of unified whole that's that's where the the worry came from so as you say Kaiser Wilhelm or, or King Wilhelm then uh, Prussian King very very reluctant to accept that um, he actually breaks down in tears when Bismarck tells him this is it now and, you know, here's the German crown. Um, and as you say, sort of says, you've ruined Prussia and this is this is it now, the end of our kingdom. What have you done, um, Bismarck? And he finds himself cornered and has to accept it. So it's very much the aristocracy feeling that this is a reluctant move that they have to accept if they want to preserve their what, what status does they still had effectively? So, in some ways, perhaps an inauspicious start uh, to the state if if a big chunk of the traditional elite is is worried about it. Um, so, one of the one of the themes that you emphasize is how the German state is born essentially in this series of wars, right against Denmark, against Austria, and of course against France, and. You're right that these are essentially its only kind of binding experience and that 
once the state exists, but those wars are over, that Bismarck then tries to continue sort of to bind the country together by perpetuating a type of struggle. But how does he manage this when there's not a foreign war to fight to bind the new nation together anymore? Indeed, he doesn't even want to have that foreign war. So Bismarck's very, very keen to avoid that, knowing that Germany's position in the center of Europe as a brand new state is quite precarious, um, especially as it's surrounded by other European nations who'd rather it wasn't there. Um, and so he has to sort of turn internally towards conflict that he can create within Germany. Um, so he identifies people as what he calls Reichsfinder, um, so enemies of the state. And various groups fall into that bracket. So anybody who doesn't sign up to his version of, of this newfound nationalism um, that he's just sort of created uh, yeah, falls into that sort of category. So this is people like the Catholics, for example, who he is sort of almost mortally afraid of um, with this idea that they're internationalists and they're really, you know, the, the old tropes against the Catholics, basically, that they're, they have no fatherland and they're loyal to the Pope. Um, so that's one group. Um, and as two thirds of this new Germany are indeed Protestant, um, he finds it relatively easy to, to find a majority really against the Catholics and, and sort of unite a, a Protestant um, majority against the Catholic minority. Um, the same goes for various national minorities in Germany. So you've got now within the new sort of boundaries that have just been drawn, you've got the French in, in Alsace and Lorraine, which he ruthlessly annexed after the Franco-Prussian War. You've got the Danes in the north, you've got um, the Poles in the east, and um, the Jews, of course, in Germany as well, about half a million. Um, and so to claim that these people are inherently not German and need to be either made German or, you know, sort of fought and, and suppressed is another way in which we can have a sort of you against us or, you know, sort of this, this feeling that Germans identify themselves against somebody else in that, in that sort of struggle. And then as socialism is beginning to emerge, that's another perfect sort of bracket, again, with this idea that they're internationalists and pacifists who would never fight for their country and are permanently disloyal to it. Um, this allows them to sort of get the middle classes and the upper classes into the same brackets. These sort of old elites and new elites that have been fighting each other in the building of it are suddenly united in their fight against socialism and against the working classes. Um, and from that angle, he kind of jumps from one thing to the next as it, you know, one thing sort of peters out and doesn't really work. Take the, the culture camp against the Catholics as one example. He jumps to the next thing and, and goes, okay, Catholics, you come on side now and we fight together against socialism. Um, and so he jumps sort of back and forth, creating new enemies within Germany. So when Bismarck sort of leaves the scene and William II sort of takes the helm, let's say, what does he do with that type of policy? Does he continue it as Bismarck did or does he sort of modify it and change it? Well, Wilhelm II absolutely hates the idea of having Germans, his Germans, his people pitted against each other. Um, in this naive Wilhelm sort of way, he sits there and wants to just be loved by all Germans and be the king and the Kaiser of all Germans. Um, and so he doesn't like that concept. So the only other solution is if he can't turn it inwards, you need to turn the conflict outwards again. Um, so let's have the Germans pitted against the other nations basically worldwide. Initially in a sort of friendly, almost friendly rivalry. So his obsession with Britain in particular is quite interesting given his own relationship with the, with the royal family being Queen Victoria's oldest grandson. He considered the, the British 
an ally and a friend as well as a rival in a, in a sort of friendly boyish almost way um you know let's see who's got the bigger navy let's see how we you know sort of compare um and that's something that eventually turns into something far more sinister and far more dangerous than than it initially was but that's the way he does it he kind of says we are as germans combined together stronger than than divided and let's all rally together against this external enemy again which is something that bismarck in his kind of slightly more um, astute way, um, realised what's going to be a dangerous thing to do. Um, Wilhelm doesn't, um, and sort of Reno rides along on this on this wave of nationalism externally. Yeah, that didn't quite work out as uh, William II would have, would have wished, I presume. Um, on that note, given that there's this policy of sort of seeking out friction, at the, to put it charitably, in order to keep this, uh, keep this new state together. I hesitate to use the word inevitable because, of course, in history, this is, a, this is a powder keg of a word. But what does that say then about the role that Germany ends up playing in the two world wars and the unleashing of those two world wars, given its origins... And then this policy for several decades after of seeking out some sort of conflict in order to make this state coherent, does it mean that it was kind of a matter of time until there was Germany plays a big role in starting a larger conflict? Or is that going too far? Well, you asked at the beginning why I wrote that book, and I think the two are linked. I get very annoyed with the idea that people think um, sort of the Kaiser's Germany was a dictatorship and a nationalist empire in any case, and it was always going to end in the First World War, um, given all of these factors. There was as much democracy, I think, in it as there was autocracy in the state. Um, So for every nationalist that you had and for every call to arms and for every kind of person fascinated with, with the military and with the expanding navy, you have an SPD member on the other side holding placards up for peace and for internationalism and for um, more democracy. And it's not just the working classes that are growing. So by the working classes are, of course, a key element here. So by 1912, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, becomes the largest party in Germany and is indeed the largest social democratic party in Europe. So a state that allows that to unfold and has universal, if male, suffrage um, at this point, you know, has has huge elements of democracy in it. Um, the bigger question is why these elements, when they make up about half of the Reichstag at that point, um, cave in 1914 um, and just roll over to the dictatorship and go, OK, fair enough, then we'll go to war. And why do they sign the the enabling act on the on the 4th of August when they could have basically prevented Willem from from going to war. And there's perhaps the element of nationalism that's interesting because they didn't want to be seen as um, traitors of the fatherland and and sort of got swept away in the same forces. But I don't think this was something that that Willem or Bismarck had unleashed as such. Um, I think that was a, a sort of common European trade at the time, whereby this, I think there's other elements such as um, social Darwinism, for example, as a, as a concept and, and those sorts of ideas that float around in, in Western Europe in the 19th century that combine, unfortunately, in Germany with the militarism, the nationalism. But it's by no means inevitable when you think there's three million trade union members, for example, in 1914. 
that could have technically caused a general strike and the Kaiser couldn't have gone to war without his ammunitions and without his soldiers. So it's more of a social thing. I think that's the interesting question here. It's not something that is necessarily impressed from the top. All right. Now let's turn to our first community question. Um, and one of our viewers writes about Catholics. He writes that uh, he or she, much this has been written on the position of Catholics in Prussia and the early empire. And he or she would like to know if the situation was different for Catholics and Poles in the early 20th century and the First World War, as opposed to the earlier years, I suppose, of the Second Empire. Um, how did conscription work for them? And were their rights in any way as a religious group restricted at the time that the First World War began? So a few elements in there about Catholicism in the late uh, period around 1914. Yeah, um, I can see why the two groups are bundled together, given the obviously majority um, kind of Catholic population in Poland. But I think we need to treat them separately because that's pretty much what the what the Second Reich did as well. So by the time that the culture camp had sort of fizzled out in the in the late 1870s, most Catholics kind of jump on board to some extent with this new Germany, um, not only because of the fight against socialism seeming a bigger threat, but also because Germany is slowly beginning to weave into a hole that accepts both Catholicism and Protestantism as sort of you know, denominations of, of the same thing, really, in, in terms of Germany defining itself as a Christian country as opposed to a Protestant one. So German Catholics, ethnic German Catholics, become far more integrated into the Reich as compared to Poles, who are still hoping that a, a Polish state would eventually emerge after the partition into Russia, Austria and, and Germany. And so the kind of very aggressive um, Germanization policy that both Bismarck and Wilhelm drive in, for instance, forcing uh, Polish children to learn in German in, in German schools, even though you know you have some areas that are entirely Polish occupied and you know full of basically Polish people, and you still end up with Polish teachers talking in German to Polish children and, and bizarre situations like this where you know hostility is created as opposed to assimilation, and so I think over time you have a situation where German Poles feel at the very least accepted, if perhaps not fully integrated yet at the outbreak of the First World War. Um, but Polish Catholics, on the other hand, still feel very much um, excluded from that process and, and don't become Germanized in the same way that, that German Catholics do. So when war breaks out, um, it's an interesting situation because German what Poles in Germany had also been part of the conscription process. So they're kind of integrated into the army in that way and fight on the German side. But you have also Poles in, in Austria that fight in the Austrian army. You've got Poles in the Russian army, bizarrely, that fight over there. You've got some um, China defect over to, to France um, and they end up being integrated into the French army. So in a way, the First World War is a, is a tragedy for, for Poland as a nation, even though the end result is, of course, of the existence of a Polish state. Um, but there are basically the, the people is divided on, on both sides of that conflict. And the only exception to that is perhaps um, Galicia, I suppose, although that obviously doesn't link into my sort of German angle, given that it's an, an Austro-Hungarian 
province where the Poles were left to be relatively independent um, and formed the, a Polish contingent within the Austro-Hungarian forces. But that doesn't happen in the German forces. They never actually set up a, a Polish, a separate Polish um, contingent. So those Poles that do fight basically choose or try to choose which side they're fighting on. But on all sides, there's a sort of coordination that eventually this hopefully ends up in a separate Polish state. So they never fight for Germany or for Russia or for Austria in the actual sense of the of the word, as it were. Whereas German Catholics do, and the sacrifice that they make collectively with their Protestant, you know, pals shoulder to shoulder, actually galvanizes, I think, the you know the sort of Germanism both sides and, and makes them feel a, a sense of camaraderie that doesn't exist. And you can see this beforehand, and you can see this with the Catholic Center Party, for example. They actually begin to lose votes as the as a um, becomes obvious that the conflict is going to ensue going up to 1914. Um, and then in the 1920s, the Catholic Centre Party become a, a much smaller force than it was previously. Um, as German Catholics begin to, when, when it's their workers, they begin to orientate themselves towards socialism um, and, and sort of other political parties, the middle class um, Catholics turn towards either liberal or conservative parties, but they begin to associate themselves with their social class as opposed to their their religion or their de- denomination. And that, I think, is something that the First World War speeds up. Yeah, I've read some interesting um, anecdotal accounts in soldiers' autobiographies and diaries and so on about some dynamics between Polish Germans and German Germans in the army. And sometimes it's camaraderie and other times it's, um, let's say, friendly teasing, at least in the eyes of the German guy who remembers it. And then other times there's uh, there's some individual hostility where the Poles uh, kind of origin is brought up as a part of that as well. Well, it's because they were quartered by all sides, weren't they? The Russians promised, promised them their own state and it begins to look like Russia is losing the war. So they, they hopefully look towards Germany and Austria-Hungary to create that state for them. But it's always about the creation of a, of a Polish nation as opposed to having any particular side when the when the war as such. Okay, next up, we have another community question. This time we're shifting quite a ways away to Africa primarily, because uh, this viewer has a question about the German colonies. Um, if they contributed any significant, anything significant in terms of the economy or strategy, and if they weren't particularly economically viable, which ones were better off? Let's put it that way. Well, before the war, um, they don't actually play a huge economic role within the German Empire. So in, in that way, I suppose the name itself is slightly misleading. It makes more sense in German to speak of the Reich as opposed to the empire because of the you know continental nature of it. Um, it's somewhat surprising because in terms of space, the German colonial empire ends up being the third largest in the world. In terms of population, it's the, it's the fourth largest with the Dutch sort of taking, taking third place. And yet it's economically not viable as such. They don't get very much out of it at all because they were just too late to the table and were sort of getting the, the scraps, as it were. Um, so in terms of the war, the situation is quite similar because the German um, elites had largely used the empire for ideological reasons. There was this whole idea that they'd have social imperialism, so expanding outwards so that people 
could become more nationalist and more proud in their country on the inside. Um, and that worked to some extent. People were absolutely fascinated with the with the colonial empire. And there was like colonial ware shops would spring up everywhere and people would proudly like buy pineapples or whatever from their, from their local shops. Coffee culture is beginning to emerge as a, as a huge thing, um, both in Germany and Austria actually as well. And um, so that works socially, but economically it's just not, viable at all. Um, Germany, in fact, had a closer connection, economically speaking, to British colonies than they did to their own. There was more trade between Germany and the British colonies than with their own. Um, And as a result of that, there were very few um, protective forces in the colonies when the the war started. So in terms of actually putting German soldiers into them, it wasn't like the British Empire, which was sort of properly connected and and supported, both with naval power and, and with kind of land forces. Um, but just to give you one example, I just looked up the, the figures the other day because I read them somewhere and didn't believe that there were that few people there. Um, but like, um, let me just find the Togo was the example I looked up. Um, when the war ensued, Togo had um, a local police force, which consisted of two officers and sort of five uh, NCOs or Unteroffiziere, um, so that's seven in total, um, who led a force of 550 local policemen, and that was it. Um, you know, others, of course, there was there were more forces in the larger colonies, but, you know, just to give you an idea of the scale of it. And so whilst Britain and France also didn't want to make a huge thing out of the colonial war, um, local people on the ground did. So the basically the um, officers that you had in those colonies decided to sort of further and enhance their own positions and started attacking on their own initiatives, the German colonies, but they were totally unprepared for it. So it does drag out to the end of the war and it doesn't, sort of the colonial war doesn't stop at any point between 1914 and 1918, but it's never the actual, um, you know, sort of, I guess, hotbed of the conflict um, as such. Um, I think the viewer asked about Tsing Tao as well, didn't he? Um, or she. Um, that is an interesting case because the Japanese thought, yeah, we have a bit of that because obviously it's a, it's a great harbour and a great port to use strategically, very valuable in theory, at least. Again, there wasn't very much kind of German support there. But they attacked immediately and basically by November 1914, they had it captured um, and took the entire German colonial force there and all 5,000 inhabitants um, into captivity um, and just captured it like that. Because again, very little resistance coming from Germany. They just, I mean, when you think how landlocked Germany actually is, yes, it has got the, the Baltic Sea, but without the ability to get out of Europe effectively with the naval blockade in place, how are they ever going to to protect those colonies abroad. And that was always the Achilles heel, I suppose, of the German colonial empire, especially in a conflict with the two nations that are effectively blocking the entrance to Europe from Germany's perspective. So not a huge role to play there, but it is nonetheless very, it's interesting, it's fascinating how the the local populations were also sort of pitted against each other in those um, colonies. So let's stick with the First World War period, uh, which is, of course, the the later period of the book, but nonetheless, one that attracts a lot of attention, especially in our our community. And we have another viewer and or listener who wants to know a bit about military thinking. And they ask about the cult of the offensive, which is sort of spread around Europe in different ways. Obviously, the French were big fans of it. Uh, The Austrians were also big fans of it to, to their cost in Galicia. What about in Germany? Were there any 
sort of military thinkers there who recognized that the power of the defense was going to be sort of the characterizing or the determining factor in how the fighting was going to play out. There are a very few thinkers. I think there was this Russian bloc uh, who published a book, you know, in the years before the war predicting, you know, pretty well how things were going to go. Unfortunately, you know, the militaries didn't really read him or listen to him. What was the, what was the situation in Germany with regard to this kind of thinking? Was anybody saying, hey, you know what, actually, you know, running around past Paris and knocking about in a few weeks might not be the way to go? Well, I think that I have a bit of a problem with this entire concept, to be to be fair, when it's applied to the German context specifically, because when you think about the geopolitical position that Germany is in, in the center of Europe, and the way that it was beginning to look like this kind of nightmare of coalitions that Bismarck spoke of was actually crystallizing and beginning to, to look like it was actually going to happen and Germany would be surrounded by, by overbearing enemies. A defensive position makes very little sense in that regard because you're kind of sat in the middle um, having to split your army effectively if you accept that. And that was always in a war for attrition going to end very badly for Germany. The moment you split your forces in half, you're never going to outnumber the enemy in manpower or resources or whichever way you look at it. So I think in the particular German situation, the only way that they saw was to make that into a kind of attacking one side first and then the other side as per Schlieffen plan, you know, sort of war of, of movement as, as much as that was possible. I think had they accepted any sort of defensive logic whatsoever, they would have had to accept that that war was an impossible one to win. Um, and so I don't think that's a, a route that the thinking would have gone down into. And like I said, if it had, the war would probably not have ensued in the same way. Um, and also, I think the other problem I have with that is, is this idea that all military thinkers in Germany bought into the same idea with that. If you look at Moltke the Elder, for example, or as he's sort of titling, styling himself, Moltke the Elder, um, he did actually have elements of defensive um, strategy in his thinking. So his logic was, okay, there's going to be increased firepower and there are going to be much larger armies than we, we used to have. So his sort of logic of, you know, you need to outflank the enemy very quickly, then dig down and then wear them down, basically, in, in that way, it combines offensive and defensive um, arguments. The problem was, of course, that his nephew, Moltke the Younger, at the outbreak of the First World War, is not his uncle um, in terms of his intellectual capacity and also just his understanding of, of military strategy and, and largely as many people would probably agree got the job because A, he was very close with Wilhelm and B, he carried the, the kudos of his uncle um, and very much stuck stubbornly to that, um, you know, to the Schlieffen plan and his own alterations to it um, that, you know, in his mind became effectively a, a, a formula for victory. I mean, the other problem is, of course, that if they you know, the, the German militaries begin to come up with a plan from 1905. So we're talking nearly 10 years of time where they were just sitting amongst this very small, you know, kind of elite club of, of military thinkers, talking to each other in this bubble and convincing each other that this is the way to go. This is how we achieve victory. It becomes a, rather than a defensive plan or what if plan, it becomes a 
kind of this is how we win sort of logic. And so to go into the war, that was never going to change, no matter what, you know, reservations individual people might have might have had about this. So that is kind of my my main issue with that. I mean, Falkenhayn, I think, realizes that a bit better than, than Molke did. Um after the Battle of the Marne in particular, when he sort of looks at the situation and, and tries to find a way out of the stalemate on the on the Western Front. Um, but again, at that point, it's too late. I mean, what were they going to do at this stage, having to, you know, effectively go into a war of attrition against, um, even without the US, against an overbearing force within Europe was always going to end up badly one way or another. I think it's just the way that Germany is trapped there in the centre and they talk themselves into the inevitability of, of war themselves and therefore try to find the only way that they could see out of it. So in my mind, this offensive cult of the offensive needs to be made into a somewhat more specific concept to apply to the German situation as opposed to the other European nations. Offensive or no offensive or something in between, uh, the Germans, of course, end up losing. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find a smooth segue here into the next question, you know. Um, but yeah, so once they do lose, I'll say it again. No. Um, <laughs> in 1918, you know, given that there is some degree of fragility in the state, since it's not that old, there are still all sorts of different elements in the state that are that one might think, okay, well, now that this trauma has happened of being defeated on the battlefield and the primary victor nation, I suppose that might be an arguable statement, but let's say France, the neighboring uh, victor, there's voices in France saying, hey, we should break up Germany into smaller states. And given that Germany itself was young and somewhat uh, fragile in terms of it doesn't have this the same state history that uh, some of the other great powers had why didn't that end up happening what is it that ends up keeping germany together in 1918 well it is a very valid question because the french certainly tried their level best to try and make that happen not just at versailles um but also in terms of sort of trying to create insurrections in, in areas that they thought might be more willing to split. So having already occupied the Rhineland and demilitarized it, that was an obvious candidate. They're Catholic. You know, they hated being part of Germany since 1815. Indeed, Adenauer, actually, who will later become the, the first German chancellor, is already arguing then um, in Cologne that, you know, this should never have been part of Prussia and let's split it off now. But even he hadn't in mind to split it off Germany altogether. It just wasn't supposed to be under Prussian overlordship. Um, I think the main problem is with the French conduct in that region. So this kind of, you know, revanchism and, and kind of um, almost bragging, you know, and then the sort of violence also that ensued locally between the, um, you know, occupiers and the, and the local population made that prospect quite unpalatable and it made people sort of, you know, cross their arms, fold their arms and go, no, not with you. And um, we'd rather stick with the Germany than if, if that's the way you're going to, to be. So initially there were some people in the, in the Rhineland in particular who supported that, but then at the prospect of potentially being annexed or controlled by France, um, I suppose the German nationalism and also the anger at the defeat was the overwhelming emotion that, that sort of prevailed. Um, another area where they tried it was Bavaria and the other southern states. Um, 
for the same reasons, really, because they they were Catholic as well and and had only reluctantly joined um, Bismarck's Germany in 1871 and only then in in the fight against France. Um, the problem was that they by then split off into a into a communist um, sort of republic um, and weren't actually as such part of Germany at that point. So they were, you know, communists effectively took hold, and their own anti-Catholicism in a way, you know, the sort of from a communist angle, then prevented them to, you know, sort of make friends with the capitalist and and Catholic France. Um, so those two ideologies began to. To clash, but more importantly, I think the experience of having gone through this war together with everything that it entailed, um, you know, the toil, the sacrifice, the, the staggering death toll, the um, people that came home with horrific injuries at home, the women trying to make do with everything, the children that had either died or were malnourished at that point. I think all of these things created a collective experience of, of sacrifice, but also of anger and of, of humiliation. Um, and so ironically, I think this catastrophe of the of the Second Reich that was supposed to be its end, in a way, I think galvanized the Germans together in a newfound nationalism. It's a bit of a bizarre thing, given that, um, you know, it's normally positive experiences and pride that um, sort of mold a, a nation together. Um, but I think that's one of the many problems that Germany has in a sort of... Um, infancy is that one of the first things that it experiences is immense trauma in that sense and that i think isn't something that was going to to break all that easily so bizarrely it was the pain and the sacrifice i think that that molded them into a nation Uh so the wars of the 1860s and 1870 not the only ones that end up binding germany together That is the note, for better or for worse, I think, on which we will uh, bring our discussion to a close today. But Katya, I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I think it's a fascinating topic, and I really like the approach that you took in the book, and I enjoyed it. For our listeners out there, if you want to get your hands on this book, it is uh, quite reader-friendly for a general audience. It's also not priced through the roof like an academic textbook or anything like that we will post a link in the podcast description as to where you can or perhaps several links as to where you can get your hands on it once again it's called blood and iron and it is by katya hoyer thank you again for joining us